you found us. It's the Crucial Conversation this Tuesday, and we've got this podcast that is being brought to you specially by one of our new presenting sponsors. Tony, let me know about it. Awesomescores.com. Guys, this is for the ACT. You know what? The ACT, we all had to take it when we were in high school. Let's be honest. It's not about how smart you are. Some people are smart. They're just dumb when it comes to taking tests. That was me. Awesomescores.com does exactly what you need them to do for you to get ready for your next ACT testing. All right, so this guy right here, his name is Dave Bobbitt. Excuse me, Dave Bobbitt. He's uh, online and gets you ready with a six hours prep over two days of the week before the test, which is coming up. So he'll get you prepared. Go to awesomescores.com to get ready. Dave is a master of math, algebra tutor. So you know what? That's all the stuff that we're all we're all struggling with. He'll take care of that for you. Awesomescores.com normally charges $2.99 for their six-hour, two-day session with Dave and uh, $99 for the eight-hour on-demand version. But if you go right now to awesomescores.com, you can type in promo code Crucial. and get all this, all of it, for one ninety nine, yes, just type in co- promo code crucial, and you can get that discount for one ninety nine. And Dave's prep is normally ninety nine dollars. We arrange our listeners for a price of seventy five dollars for the prep. Brian, how do you find that? Type in promo code crucial, and you can get that discount, guys. The last date for testing for twenty nineteen is December fourteenth. So go to awesomescores.com or call Dave personally at five zero one six eight one. 7248. Go to awesomescores.com where their passion is you nailing the ACT. Get our promo code crucial and get all that discounted pricing. Brian, who else we got presenting us this week? Whenever you're on the computer and you're looking up for the ACT prep, you need to get on that same computer and go to the driftedrumcompany.com. And they are on the driftedrumcompany.com. You're going to have access to purchase all the materials from Dr. April Jones and you can specifically get her book. No mess, no message. There they've got t-shirts. They've got, hey, just go ahead and check it out. And don't forget to use the promo code CRUCIAL to get a 10% off your purchase. Brian, we just got done dealing with Dr. April Jones at a conference. They've got it going on. Everybody go check out the Drifted Drum Company. Christmas is coming up. You know what that means? Presents, gifts, make that child smile. With our next sponsor, Jonesboro Cycling ATVD, you can guarantee that's going to happen. They've got everything from motorcycles to four-wheelers to go-karts. Anything that your kid wants, dirt bikes, they've got it. Take care of them this year. You can go to jonesborocycle.com, type in promo code, Crucial. and get 10% off your entire order. Or you can go by and see them over there on Fairpool Park Boulevard here in Jonesboro, uh, 870-935-2887. You're driving down South Caraway Road, and you're feeling your stomach rumble and grumble, and you know it's time to pull in somewhere to eat. Don't disrespect your stomach and pull in anywhere but at Lazari Italian Oven today. Go in there and get you a nice appetizer. Get a nice pasta dish. Go ahead and get you a dessert while you're there. Oh, and don't forget, you got to have a drink, too, to wash that thing down. They've got Pepsi products there. They're going to help you out. They're going to hook you up. Don't forget to tell them the Crucial Conversation sent you today. Are you tired of living in that dump house? We all know you are. The wind blows through the windows. You're freezing at night. You're freezing during the day. You put the Christmas tree up, it falls down from the draft that's going through that house. Get out of that thing. Call our friend Dustin and sell Thomas. sell it for a profit. Yeah, sell it and for sell a profit. sell it for a profit. Call our friend Dustin Thomas at Live Oak Realty. You can call him at 870-520-2522. I tell you what, he'll take care of you. It don't matter if you're looking to buy you want to sell that thing, or, hey, maybe you just want to rent for a little while, call Dustin at Live Oak Realty at 870-520-2522.
Man, I was about to start singing for a little bit, but I realized it would be disrespecting all of our listeners out there. I was going to say something about baby, it's cold outside. But it don't have to be cold inside because you can get in touch with Nat Anderson today at 870-664-1967. Again, that number is 870-664-1967. Let Nat Anderson come in, take a look at your air and your heating heating unit and make sure everything is operating the way that it should be. And again, that number again, because you don't want to miss it because it's getting cold out there. It's about to start icing up on everything and you want it warm inside is 870-664-1967. This week on The Conversation, I think we have the deepest conversation we've ever had. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Dr. Jeremy Painter. We can't really know God unless we know him in his pain. How could you possibly say that you know him when you don't know the most important maybe thing about him? Paul said that I may know him, not only in the power of his resurrection, but in the fellowship of his suffering. So. Uh, I think pain uh, acquaints us with God. Um, it is what it is to be uh, really to be made in His image. We weep because God weeps. We cry because God has cried. Literally, God has cried. Hey guys, this is Brian and I'm Tony and you're listening to the Crucial Conversation podcast. When you listen to Dr. Jeremy Painter teach and, and preach, one thing that you you come away with is that he is a wordsmith. The the way that that Dr. Painter you can tell a story uh, is certainly second to none. I have been reading, and, and we may get into it later on in the podcast, um, before we came to, to meet here at, at UGST, I've been reading some of your, your works. Uh, specifically, I've been reading your in the Apostolic Handbook series that's available at Pentecostal Publishing House. Uh, you did some writings over the poetic books of the Old Testament. And and when most people would open a book up and, and skip the author's preface and, and and the prologues to the book, and they just kind of get in. They start at chapter number one. Uh, I decided to, to read at the very beginning, and and just in that introduction, that that six pages of the preface to the book that, that you wrote in there, uh, was that a transcribe of a sermon that you had preached? Um, the answer to that is a little bit more complex than yes or no. Um, um, it was originally just a letter. It was just a letter, trying to process uh, 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 just a difficult time and uh, try to look over my life a little bit um, from within this difficult time. And um, when I finished it, um, one Sunday afternoon, I was, I was tasked with, uh, with preaching that afternoon, the evening service, and, and, uh, and nothing was nothing was happening so I just decided I needed to just read this letter 
to the church. So it became a sermon, mm-hmm. but it wasn't intended to be one. Can we discuss that later on, that, sure. that in particular letter? Because, mm-hmm. like I said, I think that that will, will, that will really connect with like, a lot I of want listeners to talk that are about out there. It now, because Brian, you want to go ahead and just yes, get to him right now. I want to get to it right now because uh, Dr. Painter Brian called me um, whenever his books he ordered them from the publishing house. Correct? Yes. Uh, he when he ordered them and he read that, he called me immediately and said, "This guy that we have scheduled for our interview is on a different level." Because what you were talking about in um, I'll, I'll let you give a little run, a quick rundown of it, Brian. But what you were talking about in it, me and my wife discussed it. And then I had to call my wife on three-way with Brian so he could discuss it better than I could. And it's something that was... Um, real. It was very real. And, I, Brian, I want you to share with our audience a little bit about what it is. Why would I share when we have the author himself? <laughs> okay. And so, so Dr. Painter, uh, could you give us kind of a, uh, a summary or... Uh, you know, I'm not necessarily asking you to, to pull it up and read word for word, but if you could kind of tell us what that beginning to those writings, uh, specifically, you know, the first chapter of your book led into the story of Job. Uh, will, you, will you discuss with us about what was going on there? Well, I, um, I was asked to do this uh, handbook on um, psalms in the wisdom literature for our um, UPCI Ministry Central. Um, and uh, I, I, I went through uh, really kind of verse by verse for that handbook, starting with Job, the first book in the wisdom uh, genre. And it, as, I was, as I was moving through, um, I thought, you know, Everything that I'm, everything that I'm saying here in in Job, in commentary on Job, is uh, is probably being guided by some things I had said earlier, or thought, or come to understand earlier. And so, um, as I got through all the way through Psalms and then Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, um, I thought, well, I think I'll put, I think I'll just put that letter at the end as an epilogue and the idea there was this would be an application of uh, what canon teaches what the canon teaches us in the wisdom section Um, there is um, there is uh, the joy in early life in youth and then as you move on towards um, uh, not just adulthood but into your middle ages, um, life gets a little bit more complicated, and um, you start even seeing your past in different in in a different life in a different light. Um, Ecclesiastes has a weighs heavily here. Um, uh, surely the the light is sweet, and he's talking about youth, and and then and then he moves on um, to speak of the evil days of old age. And I was just getting to that age where I was starting to understand that, um, starting to understand the potential loneliness of, of, of uh, the later days. And um, most of all, trying to, trying to understand how does, it, just, a, just a very old question, uh, why do bad things happen? Right. And um, how, do you, how, do you, how, do you, how does that harmonize with 
our beliefs. So I, 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 some people, this happens to them earlier in life, maybe in their early 20s or maybe even their late teens. They have kind of this cognitive dissonance. Um, how, do, how, how is this true of God, but yet our experience is showing us history seems to be defeating our theology? Would like um, we say God is a God of love, and yet I feel like if God is an all-powerful God of love, then why yeah, am why I going through? Yeah. Sure. So uh, why does why does evil, why does loss, why does suffering seem to have such the upper hand, right, um, in our world, and um, and so this this really started hitting me, and it and it hit me very very hard when. Um, when a student of mine um, was killed in a car accident, a uh, drunk driving accident. Um, she, was, she was apparently out late at night, um, but she was not drunk. She was just driving back home to her parents' house, and um, she was struck by a, a drunk driver. And so I, I had just graded her paper, and then I left notes on the paper on things that could be fixed, better ways of articulating, this for the future, how would you communicate this great idea to a wider audience, that sort of thing, all these future-oriented things. But there was no future, and I didn't know that at the time. And, um, and this, this uh, young lady was God-fearing. She came from a great family. In fact, she was coming home from church. Um, and so if she, had, if she had been perhaps that night living in the world, um, as we, you know, as our lingo goes, living in the world. If she had been, say, out partying that night, or if she had been just stayed home maybe and watched TV, um, that wouldn't have happened. But because she was coming home from a church service, obeying, honoring God, um, this tragedy happened. And so um, trying, trying to process that uh, while also... Um, uh, remembering phrases from scripture like um, I will enter his gates with thanksgiving enter his courts with, with praise be thankful unto him and bless his name for the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever um, how, how is that harmonious with this family at this point in time so it was born out of that and, and so the idea that developed was um, it became very real to me at that moment was there were two lives or two presences that seemed to be um, occupying space in my heart. The first was praise, and I had learned to praise um, from my earliest days, especially from my grandmother, that praise was something that you did all the time. Um, praise was your innermost response to the goodness of, and mercy of God. But um, then there was this other presence, the, the presence of suffering, the presence which seemed to, um, which seemed to negate praise. Um, so I had, so I, I was tempted to have this very, um, uh, this very uh, siloed existence. Here's a time for praise, and here's a time for, um, for. Pain and, and almost developed a kind of duality. The world is good against evil, light against darkness, and that there's a, almost a, they're almost co-equal. Mm -hmm. um, and 
and and and that that uh, that idea was unbiblical. It was deeply unbiblical. Um, read Job. Um, the 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 blessing comes from the lips of a man in agony. The blessing uh, uh, blessing God comes from the lips of a man um, who has has been uh, seemingly cursed and. And uh, David himself, uh, who, who is the uh, sweet um, musician of Israel, is constantly urging the people of God to praise God. But here is a man that went through one tragedy after another, some of, him, some of them of his own making. Um, nevertheless, um, uh, this is a man who, you know, who stands on top of the walls of Mechanahim and, and says, Absalom, Absalom, my son. I mean, he knows what it is to lose. He knows what it is to be driven forth from the throne that God put him on by his own son and then have to mourn over him and be left with the last image in life of this boy of his hanging from a tree. Um, so I was missing something. And, and in time, um, uh, Scripture taught me. Uh, the Holy Spirit, I think, taught, teaches us that, in fact, um, that in fact, pain is a part of life, that suffering is very much a part of life, and that the person I had learned most about praise from, my grandmother, had suffered and lost as much as anybody in life, and yet late in life, nobody knew how to praise the Lord like she did. And so I started seeing a correlation between losing and but maintaining praise. In fact, the praise was deeper. It was stronger. It was greater. It was more genuine from those who had lost than from those who had gone through life seemingly um, with a breeze. So you've seen um, your grandmother go through some stuff in um, I know Brian told me a little bit about you, you speak about that in the book a little bit um, how does one rejoice and praise when they're in the darkest hour of their life and be genuine about that um, how, how does one develop uh, a, a greater depth in their praise no I, so for instance, um, myself, I went through a very dark place in my life where I, I, I've i been raised in truth, I know the truth, I hold it close to my heart, but I failed. I struggled. Um, I, I wasn't always perfect. And how in my, when, I, when all that came to a head and I came to the realization I'm failing God and I'm in this depressed state of mind how do i be genuine about the praise that i give even though i'm i'm living in a dark time i feel like i'm not even worthy to praise mm -hmm. yeah that that's um uh, i i don't i don't know that there would have been there would have been many psalms of praise written um if it had hadn't been written from broken um broken hearts um uh, and most especially broken hearts in the sense that uh, we become disappointments to ourselves. Right. Um, great disappointments, and we can only imagine the disappointment that a uh, holy God might have. Um, so uh, 
most of most of the book of Psalms was written uh, was written uh, in in you know after times of failure. Um, uh, uh, David spoke of of um, uh, the contrite heart, the the bones. Allow the bones that you've broken rejoice again. Um, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Um, and then the end of the psalm, it, it's, it's, a, it's a psalm of, of lament and, and contrition, but it ends in praise. And the, perhaps the greatest praise is, is um, you have taken a lowly uh, man such as I and used me as a vessel anyway. You have cleansed me. I'm thinking right now of the Apostle Paul. All right, so early in, earlier in his ministry, I should say, somewhere around 53 or so um, after Christ, he writes to the uh, church at Corinth, um, and uh, this, is, this is a section of Scripture, uh, one of his letters that is, is perhaps more focused on the life, the actual life of Jesus than at any other point, but he, uh, he articulates an early creed of the church and says... Um, he speaks of, of Christ appearing after his resurrection to the apostles, and then he says, and last of all, he appeared unto me, who am the least of the apostles. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. All right, so I'm the least of the apostles. And then he goes on to praise God. I am what I am by the grace of God. And then, a couple of years later at least, he writes to the Ephesians, and he says, um, in almost the same vein, um, he mentions that I have been made a minister of this grace, that I, who am the least of the saints, should be able to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ among the Gentiles by the grace of God. Same subject, same idea, but something has changed Paul has gone from the least of the apostles in his own estimation to the least of the saints in his own estimation. And then in the final years of his life, perhaps the final year of his life, 1 Timothy, he says that, um, and I'm paraphrasing him, he says that I was um, given great strength from the Lord through Jesus Christ um, that uh, that I should be a vessel of mercy. And I, uh, I, I was given this grace um, uh, to speak the, the unspeakable riches of Christ. And this is a faithful and trustworthy saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And then he goes on to say, God did this even though I was a persecutor and a blasphemer at one time, and I did it in ignorance. But he decided to make me a vessel of his mercy that he might put me on display for all of the ages, that I might be a saver unto those who would believe unto eternal life. And then maybe the most beautiful words in all of Scripture, at least for me, um, and, and I would, and, and I like to repeat this in Paul's native tongue. He says, "To devasile tonionon, afarto orato, mano theo, 
Temei kedaxa, tu sionos, tonionon, amen. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be the glory and honor forever. So, put these three together, and you see he goes from the least of the apostles, in his estimation, to later in his life, the least of the saints, and then finally the least, the chiefest of sinners. And each time along the way, his praise, his glorification of the of, of his his understanding of the grace of God has risen as he has lowered, been lowered in his own estimation. And so my my long answer to that yeah. question is. Uh, it becomes a greater marvel. You can only write Amazing Grace, a song that's hauntingly beautiful as Amazing Grace. So beautiful that even atheists sing it with tears in their eyes. If you understand and put in there a wretch like me. Mm. Wow. So, so in that, wow. <laughs> obviously, we're, we're talking about, well, obviously, we're that crucial conversation. We're, we're having a very crucial conversation because what we're talking about is probably the biggest question everyone has. It's that question of, of, of the odyssey, of why bad things happen to good people. And so we, we've talked about the response to the bad, and we, we've talked about how everybody encounters bad. Why, in your esp- estimation, is it that pain and suffering is a part of life, an essential part of life. Um, I'm trying to avoid long answers. No, we enjoy it. (laughs) Um, um, My understanding is this far in life, and and this could be modified um, as I go, but... um, what I'm understanding at this point in time is that nothing brings us closer to the heart of God than pain. C.S. Lewis referred to pain as God's megaphone. Um, and, and I think it would be best if maybe I even quoted him here. He says that um, God whispers to us in our pleasure. But pain is God's megaphone to wake a slumbering world. Um, if if uh, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ bodily, and the essence of Christ, um, his most heartfelt, his most heartfelt expression comes from Calvary. Uh, among those sayings on Calvary, there's a, a sense of forsakenness, God forsakenness. There's a sense of the abandonment of not only God, but also uh, his own brethren. There is um, a father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Uh, he says he thirsts. He says, um, he says uh, uh, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Uh, surely this day you'll be with me in paradise. Those are some of the sayings of Jesus from the cross. Um, in, 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 in some, you, you see this this. Um, God in agony on the cross. This is, this is Jesus. This is the essence of who Jesus is. Um, 
we see God more clearly on the cross than we see him at any other time. We see God, uh, Paul, according to Paul, um, the true revelation of Christ. Uh, uh, it, Calvary is when God pulls back the veil and you see his heart more than you've ever seen him in, in performing miracles or speaking from the top of Sinai or even uh, saying, let there be light. It's on Calvary that you really know who God is. So my answer to this question is, um, Jesus is, is a, is a, um, as a the, the manifestation of God, he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Um, we can't really know God unless we know him in his pain. How could you possibly say that you know him when you don't know the most important maybe thing about him? Paul said that I may know him, not only in the power of his resurrection, but in the but fellowship, fellowship of his suffering. So uh, I think pain uh, acquaints us with God. Um, it is what it is to be uh, really to be made in his image. We weep because God weeps. We cry because God has cried. Literally, God has cried in the Garden of Gethsemane and before the tomb of Lazarus. And in the ages past, who knows? Um, so pain and suffering brings us close to a closer knowledge of who God is. One thing in, in reading as you uh, go through and you're breaking down the book of Job um, is that when, when you begin to speak about God's response to the questions of, of Job and to his contemporaries there, um, you made a, a point that, that I saw that was very profound that I'd never heard anyone uh, speak of. You talked about how the response of God uh, whenever he asked Job, well, where were you when, when I made the worlds? And as God begins to go through and talk about the Leviathan and the behemoth, that, that you said that it would, it would be beneficial to an individual to read the book of Job through and then go back and read chapter 3 and then go directly to God's response. Can you, can you speak about why it is in, in studying the book of Job? Uh, and if you want to give us some background before that of like what brings Job to the place where he is in chapter 3, and why is it that God's response later in the book is a response to his third chapter? Well, um, it has been a little while since I, since I wrote that, and... and and um, to my best recollection, um, um, and I can't quote this verbatim, but Job has essentially um, has essentially asked for creation to be undone. He has said um, that he wishes that the night in which he was conceived, and then the day in which he was born, or was it the other way around? He was con yes, he was conceived in the night and in the day he was born, and then a, uh, a maidservant came out and said, a male child is born. Let that day be reversed and, and, and turn light into darkness. 
what he has essentially done here is he has unsaid Genesis 1, let there be light. He has said, let there be dark. Um, I, I, th this, is, this, is a, um, this is where angels fear to tread. What Job has said here is of the utmost significance. Um, now, God has in the end vindicated Job. Um, but God has taken some shots. Um, he has been insulted, uh, but not cursed. Um, and most of all, God's creation was insulted. Th he has basically said, because of my pain and sorrow, not only is my life not worth living, but this whole universe is worthless. All right, so let all of this be undone. Of course, he's shaking his fist at the clouds. There's, there's nothing that can be done here. But someone is listening. <laughs> um, heaven has pulled up a chair, and maybe hell too. And, and uh, they all sit around on front, front row seats um, watching Job, watching this tragic comedy. And so... So my, I think my point was there that if you see Job basically say that creation is not worth the trouble, then skip ahead to God speaking out of the whirlwind, and then he begins to speak of creation. Um, who has put thunder in the neck of the horse? Who taught the billy goat uh, to feed? Who taught the ostrich to care for her young? Who was it that stood on the shore and said to the sea, this far and no farther? Who was it that taught the clouds to drop rain? All of this sort of thing. Um, exalting the, the work of creation. I think it's a direct response to this. Let this world be unmade. Wow. Um, so where where's on a personal level, where, where did your studies begin? And, and I know that yeah. you've, one thing that we wanted to, to talk about is, is that you're, um, well, I'll let you tell it. What, what are all, like I said, what's, what's been your, your process? Where has it been your schooling and, and your focuses of study? I started, I started out, um, as far as higher education goes, I started out in religious studies, just basic general, um, religious studies, but um, uh, it became clear to me at some point at the end of my undergraduate studies, or my junior year really, that, um, that I, I had this love for English literature, for literature in general, um, particularly storytelling and great writing. So uh, I thought, what good is it to have great ideas but not be able to express them? Um, so, I, so the strategy was, well, let's, let's study the masters of, of communication, of, of literature, and find out how they tell stories. Um, there's, there is always a better way to tell a story. And if there's anything you're going to be good at in life, it ought to be telling a story. 
um, it's extremely useful. Everything we do is about stories. Everything from the moment we wake up, we're in the middle of a narrative, and we jump into that narrative. Uh, it, the the narrative there's a running narrative in our life, and when something bad happens, it seems to uh, throw that narrative off, and that's that's our that's our problem. Yeah. Um, people when they talk to each other, they they talk in stories, and you're always speaking into a story, a story that you have developed between the two of you. Um, when you um, when people go home at night in the United States, they typically go home and turn on a television to watch stories. Um, whenever you sit down at an interview, you're telling a story. Uh, in Congress right now, there are people telling stories and that is how legislation is passed or not passed. It's how policy is, is created. It's all about stories, if, even in raising children. I have had to um, tell the better story the world was telling one story. I need the better story. And so I want to tell it as well as I can um, in, in uh, creating or inculcating, instituting morals in my children. It took stories. So if there's anything you're going to be good at, it needs to be stories. I mean, nations go to war over clashing stories. Think of World War II. Germany had its own story that it was telling, and the other, the other nations said, we don't agree with that story. And so they went to war over the story. Um, the gospel is told as a story. So I wanted to be good at that. So the idea was I'm going to get out of religious studies for right now, um, change to an, an English concentration, and then I went on to a master's degree in English and then a doctor's degree in English literature. And, but my, that was never my final uh, goal, mm-hmm. was just English literature. I wanted that to be the servant to theology, uh, to be able to express it as well as I, I could. So whenever you, since you have this background of English studies, the Bible wasn't originally written in English. How has your, um, your studies affected the way that you teach, understand, read through, uh, discuss the scriptures. I mean, obviously, we've, we've been given glimpses of it. And at one point, you quoted uh, Paul in his native tongue. Uh, how has your studies of English affected uh, your studies of the New Testament uh, specifically? Um, well, when I, when I open up the Bible and, and read a story, um, thinking that there are a thousand different ways to tell this story, but uh, God in his wisdom has chosen this way. And, um, I, you know, I once listened to a lecture from uh, the great uh, South American writer uh, Jorge Luis Borges, who was an atheist and Jewish, was asked uh, what is the greatest piece of writing you have ever read? And what is the one, the one story, the one written story that you would never want altered, not even one syllable? What is the one story that can't be improved? And he said, the Gospel of Luke. And, and, and now, for a Jewish atheist to say this, now, there's really no greater literary mind that was living in the 20th century than Borges, and, and um, 
I, I heard that long, long ago. And the, I, I, immediately after that, I picked up the Gospel of Luke and I read through it. Yes, I, I see that. I see that exactly the way Luke tells the story. There is, there is uh, just a matchless elegance, um, uh, un, unparalleled depth. Um, you can't improve upon it in any way. So just talk with me about, about Luke. Luke was not uh, a disciple of Jesus. How did Luke get the, the story? And then how did he transmit it? Well, uh, from what we can tell, um, he is, is the only gospel writer who has, um, who has, though he didn't reveal his sources, he did mention them. And uh, whereas Mark just, just tells the story, Matthew just tells the story, although he seems to, he seems to stop by the uh, uh, genealogical library somewhere along the way. Um, uh, Luke tells us that uh, there are many stories that exist of Jesus, many accounts of Jesus, but um, I have, and I'm paraphrasing him, um, gone place to place to find uh, the best uh, that I could find uh, to verify. So he's used, he's um, used uh, some of his, uh, probably some of his Greco-Roman training in literature to help assemble sources, the best verified sources. And, um, you know, in tradition, in Christian tradition, um, one of his sources is Mary. Uh, so you, if you go right now into the um, Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, and you go to the small basilica um, under which is the tomb of Christ, and look straight up above that, above that basilica to the overarching basilica, the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Look up on the ceiling, and you'll see um, a, uh, you'll see the uh, Jesus Christ Pentateuch. Um, so Jesus in the middle staring down and then around him there are four the four evangelists and they're depicted in different poses uh, Mark is shown writing in a book that's important because uh, because uh, books or codices were a Roman way mm -hmm. of communicating Matthew is shown with a scroll to the Jews Jews mm -hmm. and then uh, John is hearing a voice from heaven and there's an there's an, uh, an a dove all right, so he's looking off towards heaven, but Luke is shown painting on a canvas, and what he's painting is Mary and Jesus, uh, 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 Mother Mary and Jesus, and this is um, very, 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 this goes back to a, a very old Christian tradition that one of Luke's main sources was Mary, so you often see Luke and Mary um, in iconography um, bound up together. And just open up Luke and, and, and ask yourself, who would have been his best source? If he's using human sources, who would have been his best source for some of this information? Notice that in Matthew, Matthew speaks of dreams and visions that Joseph had. The angel were never shown the angel speaking to Mary. But go over to Luke and it is um, 
uh, the angel Gabriel speaking to Mary. Um, and so um, there is the sense that maybe Luke's gospel is, part of it at least, is written from Mary's perspective. So whenever we were on the phone with you, uh, Brian was asking you your expertise of knowledge, and you told us that it was uh, John, correct? Mm-hmm. So we have a guy in our church, as well as you, that find that the book of John is incredibly intriguing. Is there something specific? I mean, what is it that is in the book of John that kind of captivated you? Yeah, it draws. It seems to draw a lot of people in. It, it draws a lot of people in. And I got, before we came up here, I sat down with the guy in our local church, and I said, um, what is it for you? And he just began to tell me about the journey that is that you're taking through that book. What is it for you that um, the book of John really spoke to you about? Well, the the the, the prologue um, in Archean Halagas Ki Halagasain Ki Halagas Prostontheon, etc. etc. This opening uh, kind of pian to um, uh, to um, the very very beginning but what began I don't want to get into all of that right now but it, it, there was the, the simplest language was used to try to communicate the deepest of things um, so in in today's in, in, if you were to, you know you translate this into English read any English translation of John 1 and here it is in the, and then here's a, a polysyllabic word beginning, was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning. There's that word again, with God. Um, and then you can keep on going through the prologue and see in English, these are all the simplest words. They're everyday words, like words like word words like was, the, in, same, life, light, that sort of thing. And, and yet, um, something so, um, so uh, with so, so much depth that it has puzzled people, has inspired people, it arrests people, even if you don't understand it, it arrests you. Um, how do you do that in, in everyday language? So it's, it started there, I suppose. In, in Greek, the, these aren't all monosyllables, but still they're a part of everyday Koine Greek, um, which is just marvelous, marvelous. Um, I suppose that, that kind of mystical beginning drew me in, but I was really, really drawn in um, uh, by something that's said at the end of the prologue, the very last verse says that, um, um, and, and I'm sort of paraphrasing, but he, uh, the prologue says that no one has seen God at any time except the only begotten Son um, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared or um, interpreted, made visible the invisible God. Um, I was really, really intrigued by that, but the, the arresting moment was when I got into the middle of the gospel and noticed uh, 
that the beloved disciple was in was depicted in the bosom of Jesus. Now, if you remember the prologue, Jesus is in the bosom of the Father. Here we see later at the Last Supper, John is in the bosom of Jesus. All right, so what if there is meant to be some kind of parallel mm -hmm. between Jesus and the Father and John and Jesus? Well, what does, it, what does the rest of that, what does that text say about Jesus and the Father? No one has seen God at any time except the only begotten Son. And because of this favored, this, the, 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 uh, the term used is the kolpon, the side, or sometimes translated the bosom, this is the, this is the place of the favored pupil in antiquity. It's not a literal place. It is a symbolic place. Um, this is the apple of the teacher's eye, so to speak, or the favored son, that sort of thing. So because of this favored position of Jesus, he is able to make visible the invisible God. He has declared or exegeted him, is what the text says. Fascinating. What if that is what if that is uh, uh, in the implication for John with regards to Jesus? He's in the bosom of Jesus here. Mm. Is it, does he have the favored position? Well, he's called the agapitas, the beloved, yeah. the, the, the one whom Jesus loved. Oh, yeah. And then what is this business about he has declared him or made visible the invisible? Well, that is, it seems, John's role in Christian history has been to make in, uh, the invisible now Jesus, right. who's gone into the heavens, make him visible again through the Gospel of John, through the letters of John, and through the revelation of John. Yeah, because I mean, many like, critics would say, well, well, John's Gospel presents a higher view of Christ than all the other Gospels. And in a way, if... Because when, when you read John's Gospel, obviously it's not like the synoptics. It has those characteristics of uniqueness that, like all of the, from my recollection, all of the miracles that he does all point to a truth about how I am the light to the world or, or I am the bread. These I am statements that are connected throughout it that presents this high view of Christ. Mm -hmm. and, and so from what I'm gathering from this, in a way you're saying that in that just from the, be the beginning of the chapter, and it's kind of revealed there in the middle of the book, that John is seeing his purpose as to reveal Christ in the way that Christ revealed the Father. Right, right. And, and so you can't go so far with the analogy that suddenly John becomes a, a deity. Yeah. Uh, so it's not an exact parallel, and John didn't mean it to be an exact parallel. However, he is saying something about what this gospel means vis-a-vis -vis the others. It doesn't mean that the others are false. He could have taken the opportunity to declare them false, mm -hmm. but he didn't. He didn't do that at all. I mean, he had plenty of space to do that. He even had the authority. It seems he had the respect amongst the people if perhaps he wanted to do that, but he didn't do that. What he did say, however, was, was that this is the capstone, ultimate gospel. This is, this is a all right, so there is a dichotomy that runs through John's gospel like a silver thread, and you've got to pay attention to it. It is bound up in the two words, um, anno, 
which can mean above or again, and then kato, which means below or earthly. All right. Um, Jesus is that is like a, the, the root of like the word uh, katakaluta, or it's like let down from? Um, that, that's a preposition there. Okay. Um, so there's, a, there's a, a slight spelling difference there, but I see what you're saying. Yeah. See, like I was because you said down, and I was wondering if that's what it means by let down. It is related. Okay. It is related. Uh, positionally, okay. it is related. So kato, um, it's, it's, in, it's in the dative, it ends in omega. Whereas kata mm-hmm. ends in an alpha. Okay. Um, but kato is below, anno above. And Jesus says, I am from above, anno. You are from below, kato. All right. And this is why you can't understand, mm-hmm. basically. All right. He, this, this kind of above, below dichotomy, it just runs through every dialogue that Jesus has with people. There is... Um, there is this sense in which you have two planes of existence. And Jesus is, is basically, in every conversation, sitting down with people who only know how to play checkers. In, but they're playing check, chess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so specifically, I was going to ask you after this, is w- w- looking at like John chapter number 3, whenever I have read through it before, it seems like in a way that Jesus almost ignores the question of Nicodemus because he's kind of given him an answer to a question that isn't directly posed in the text. So if you were to take us through John chapter number 3, why is the story told in the way that it is where he, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and he asks him, well, obviously you're a prophet, otherwise, or you're sent from God because otherwise no other man can do these miracles that you're doing. And Jesus returns to him and says, Truly I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. And it seems like, again, it seems to me like the question wasn't directly posed. So when you go through the story and you take uh, this, this thread that goes through, how does that narrative play into those words that Jesus presents? All right, so the word, the, the word um, anno is in there, in that response to Nicodemus. Unless you're born anno. In many translations, it's again, born again. But again, anno can mean either above or again. Um, So we call ourselves born again Christians. John's text literally means born from above. Mm -hmm. Wow. All right. Yeah. So this is the problem that Nicodemus is having. He's from below, (laughs) but he he had a birth below. Mm -hmm. Cato. He has to be born from above, though, uh, as Jesus is from above. So, um, so again, in, in just in every conversation, that's the difficulty. And this is why we have the prologue in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. The reason why we have that beginning is, is the reader is being given the background information on who Jesus is that is missing from all of the other characters. They don't have that above perspective. So the prologue is the anno perspective. Mm -hmm. We want you to read this gospel from above, and then you'll understand what it's like for Jesus to encounter all of these people from below, which you're also from below. But you can see the dissonance. Um, So 
Um, uh, Peter wrestles with this. Nicodemus wrestles with this. The Samaritan woman wrestles. There's always this mis misunderstanding. There's more humor in John's gospel than in any of the rest of scripture. Like literally, LOL, laugh out loud stuff in John's <laughs> gospel, which you think this is a very, this is a gospel of great sobriety and gravitas. Right. In fact, he uses the simplest language and there are moments where you're supposed to laugh out loud. Um, where you understand, see, the reader is given the bigger picture because of the prologue. And it's always, always, always the most fun for a reader when the reader is given information that the characters in the story don't have. Right. Like the story of Esther when Mordecai and, uh, excuse me, Mordecai. Uh, 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 no, uh, oh a my goodness. Ahasuerus. Uh, Haman. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I was about to name every character of the story. <laughs> <Yeah. that laughs> <I avoid. laughs> what is Haman doing? Um, uh, he, he's, he's, uh, let's erect gallows mm -hmm. and hang the person who doesn't bow down to the, bow, you know, doesn't bow down. Well, he's, the, 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 as Esther's inviting Haman to dinner, we know that with every invitation, the rope around the neck is getting tighter. And he is, in fact, Haman is crafting the very rope which he will be hung by, mm -hmm. right? And so you get this intense pleasure as a reader from knowing more than the characters in the story know. You get the God's eye view. Well, John 1 is the God's eye view. And then you get this pleasure from watching the Samaritan woman uh, roaming around rhetorically, trying to come to grips with who this person is and who has revealed something about her past that she just doesn't quite understand herself, yeah. Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is the, is, he's the upper crust of the human race in terms of knowledge, and yet he is swinging and missing. He's coming, he starts, he starts with a compliment. We know you come from God, for no one can do these miracles unless God's with him, or do these, do these things unless God's with him. And Jesus has been complimented right there. And what is the courteous thing to do when someone's complimented you? Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate that. Um, do you mind if I, I talk to you about a few things that are on my heart? That's the, that's the gentlemanly way mm -hmm. to do this. No, he says, unless you're born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom. of That's his response to that compliment. And then Nicodemus says, I'm an old man. Am I supposed to climb back up into my mother's womb and be born? And the disturbing thing is that Jesus doesn't say no. Um, he, use, he insists upon the metaphor, you must be born from above or you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then, and then and Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Well, don't you understand, and Jesus says, he tries to, he tries to bridge the gap from below and above by using the analogy of the wind and the spirit. Mm -hmm. So is everyone who's born of the spirit. So um, the, every, every, every single um, episode with Jesus is this attempt to bridge the divide from above and below. So it starts with, it starts beautifully with this conversation he has with Nathaniel. And Nathaniel says, basically, how did you know about this fig tree situation? And Jesus says, if you stick with me, you're going to see even greater things. In fact, you're going to see 
the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. There's that bridge, mm -hmm. the ladder between above and below upon the Son of Man. And Jesus himself is that bridge between the two. And um, uh, just all the way through, um, you see Jesus serving as, uh, uh, um, as that, uh, ep to use um, the... Uh, uh, academic word that you probably just erase out of this is the epistemological uh, bridge between the above and below. Uh, so is there a um, general misconception about um, you were just talking about the conversation about being born again. Have you ever ran into a general misconception um, in your teachings that people understand um, completely wrong when it comes to the plan of salvation? I mean, because the reason I say that is um, Brian had a conversation, well, it was more of a debate than a conversation with some people um, not too long ago that didn't believe in miracles, that God doesn't perform miracles. And Brian, feel free to jump in here at any time that you want. Uh, but they just didn't believe in that, that it was necessary, or not that it was necessary, but that God just doesn't do that anymore. Um, and we talked a little bit before uh, with someone else about it, not some people thinking that um, the new birth experience isn't, um, isn't something that is mandatory to make it to heaven. Is there a misconception that you're finding um, that people are believing in, in you know, this up-and-coming generation that we need to continue to, to hold value to? Regarding salvation? Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. about being born again. I'm so sorry. Repeat the question. Oh, well, regarding the um, scenario I just mentioned, the, um, the, the new birth and water, water baptism. Um, yeah, so, so in uh, academics, um, say 30, 40 years ago and before, uh, for a, a period of, you know, probably a few centuries, there was a... a popular belief that Jesus is speaking almost quite literally here of the birth from your mother's womb. Um, it, that is a reference to the water, and then the Spirit would be the second form of baptism. Um, however, John is, John is constantly using um, what uh, early Christians called a spiritual language. So, he uses uh, he uses uh, earthly realities to point to spiritual or earthly earthly phenomena to point to spiritual realities, and so when uh, John's gospel speaks of speaks of water, it holds incredible significance. It is not um, Jesus speaks of, of uh, uh, himself being a, a, the well or a fountain. Um, he speaks of uh, 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 the gospel writer speaks of water emanating from Jesus' side. This is not, and, and I've heard that interpreted literally before. Like, he had to have been stabbed in his heart in order for there to have been uh, the release of blood and water. Uh, that may be true, but that's hardly John's reason for mentioning that. Um, water is this, is, is directly tied, it, John is writing to his own community in Ephesus. 
And the Ephesians have the practice of baptism. Water has, has from the very beginning, been uh, that, um, that, uh, that, spirit, that uh, earthly phenomenon that has spiritual significance that um, initiates you into the kingdom of God. Um, so I think if we were to use this, this particular example, um, there's, there's a lot of um, the Protestant Reformation involved in this kind of explaining away that water. All right, so we don't want to ascribe any salvific um, uh, significance to water, baptism, because it doesn't save you, um, the, the, uh, the re- some of the reformers said. Um, so you get to the point where in, um, uh, the water basically just becomes a, a reference to the mother, and you could plausibly say something like that, but that's ignoring John's symbolic world. John's symbolic world, light, darkness, water. Um, these are th- like the three main um, uh, uh, earthly phenomena that are used for spiritual significance. There's also, of course, water and wine, turning the water into wine, um, and uh, blood, of course. So uh, whenever you see uh, water in this episode, I think, um, yeah, we're, we're dealing with something that it, it needs to be understood within John's audience, not within a 16th, 17th, yeah, 18th Protestant century. Reformation thought. Right, right. Um, so when you look at John specifically, and, and this is something that we talked about, how you studied the, who the, the writers were, uh, this is one thing that, that is just a, kind of a phenomenon to me when, when you look at it. How did John change from when we're first introduced to him in the Gospels through his writings until we see his writing in the book of Revelation? Can you look at that and you can kind of see where there's like pivot points in his life that have kind of changed? Um, yes, yes. Um, uh, all right. In the epilogue of John's Gospel, you have the conversation between Jesus and Peter. And um, Jesus says um, to Peter, follow me, and then explains what that will mean for Peter. And then uh, that's going to involve him at at a certain point in his old age being carried where he doesn't want to go and uh, another dressing him, and then he will stretch forth his hands, um, Jesus says, stretch forth, which is uh, John's way of alluding to the crucifixion. So Jesus would also stretch forth his hands. This is how you glorify the Lord in John's gospel, it's by crucifixion. And the narrator says, after Jesus is finished, what he meant by this was, this was the way Peter was going to die to glorify the Lord. That was by crucifixion. Um, and Peter knows, Peter knows what he's up against right here. He knows what this stretch forth your hands means. This is a dark ending. And Peter says, well, what about him, John? And, um, and Jesus says, what is that to you? Follow me. And, um, and then there's this discussion of John 
there's a rumor about John not dying, but remaining until Jesus comes back. And uh, the, the narrator wants to dispel that, that, that rumor because John has died now. Um, the, the last few sentences of John's gospel seem to have been written by the, the John's community, saying that this was the faithful witness, etc. So John has died, and uh, they need to say something about this, this rumor. All right. So, um, if you look at that, if you look at that scenario, if you look at that scene with with Jesus speaking about John remaining until he comes, um, it may it was interpreted by Peter at the time. It seems that John was getting off easy in life. That John was going to go through less than Peter was going to go through. Peter was going to die a horrific death while John got to remain. John got to be, he, as he always seemed to be, um, the favored one. And so what seemed like a favor, like the position of favor, remaining, flip over to the last page of the Bible and look what John writes there. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. This remaining in the beginning seemed like good fortune. But in the end, there's the agony of being separate. Peter has already gone on. The other disciples have gone on, and I'm still here. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So there's this, I, there's this I think, this kind of change that you can see uh, going from John's Gospel to Revelation. Um, as far as theological development, I'm not sure that that's possible uh, to, to derive from the data that we have. That, that, that is remarkable that whenever John, there at the end, after all these things that obviously he's gone through because he's been through many sufferings, and even, the, even though he remained, he was still abandoned, on, was, was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, mm. had, had gone through so many, so many different sufferings, and then that longing of that his brothers that he'd walked with for all those years and, and was a part of, uh, that, that, is, that is an eye-opening to the person of, of who, who John was. Um, let me ask you about another individual. So the, the Apostle Paul, um, when, 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 can you tell, obviously, with the disciples, they came from all different trades. You had tax collectors, you had fishermen, uh, you had, um, you know, everything uh, with Luke, even Terrorist. though he wasn't... Hmm? Terrorist. Yes, for, for Paul, <laughs> in or whenever he was Saul. So when you look at all these different individuals, and, and obviously there were different educational levels, can you tell when you read through that, like, uh, Paul, where he was trained in the Jewish schools of uh, Gamaliel, I think was his name, can you tell that Paul has a different educational level than the others, or has through the process of the Holy Spirit's inspiration to them, all kind of brought them to the same level. Oh, that's a good question. So, I, I would, I would, um, I would say that the Holy Spirit's inspiration didn't start when they picked up the pen and started writing. It started early in their lives, and gave them different backgrounds different um, strengths and weaknesses, 
um, different vantage points. Um, so Mark writes very differently from Matthew. Matthew very differently from Paul. And all of them very different from Luke. And even all of them do not meet the rhetorical skill of the author of Hebrews, um, who stands supreme mm -hmm. um, in the New Testament as far as rhetorical uh, ability goes. Um, so there are, there are vast differences uh, uh, in what you would call skill, uh, just pure literary skill. So I, I, I am asked sometimes, well, did, did the Holy Spirit tell the author what to write? He picks up the pen, and then there's a voice, and you're basically you become this kind of holy in, um, transcriber. And this is, a, this is a very important question because when it comes to any, like a, an, an apologetics, when it comes to people of the Islamic faith, the, the Quran is the direct recitation of the angel as he spoke to the prophet Muhammad. And so they would say that the, the golden tablets of which the Quran was written on in heaven is of an exact replica that it is in the written Quran here on earth. And so they would look at Christians at the process of, of inspiration, and, and it's a different standard because with us, with our faith, it is not direct recitation. Hmm. Hmm. Can you explain or elaborate on that? Yeah, uh, um, that has all kinds of implications right there um, uh, for uh, the Christian faith, the Judeo-Christian faith, really, and um, the, or tradition and the Islamic tradition. Um, you you need to if if you're if you're a Muslim, you the, you need to learn Arabic in order to really know. Right. Um, the perfect will of God, to, to, to know the Quran perfectly. Um, so um, uh, that's never been the case in, uh, since the uh, advent of Christianity. Uh, it has been translated into every language. And on the day of Pentecost, we knew that this was going to be the result. Jesus uh, uh, speaks of a power that's going to be uh, poured out upon his people in the upper room, and then there, the, the, the power of the Spirit comes, and they begin to speak in other tongues, and then uh, people are hearing God glorified in various languages, which speaks to, um, to Christianity's polylinguistic abilities right from the start. We're going to be able to knock over uh, racial, ethnic barriers, national barriers. We're going to become the, first, the world's first world religion. Um, so um, uh, that's, that's very, very, if, if you say that you need to learn Greek or you need to learn Hebrew in order to know um, the word of God perfectly and to live for the Lord perfectly, uh, that's, that flies in the face of the spirit of Christianity, really. Um, and if, regarding inspiration, um, uh, I, I, think, I think we all need to remember Again, Luke's prologue, he says, It seemed good to me also. So many have set forth an account of the things we believe, of Christ's life, but it seemed good to me also. So <clears throat> it, it, seems to, it seems to me that, that God was using Luke's abilities, that it wasn't just God speaking in a megaphone, 
to Luke or some kind of a, you know, like a um, uh, Ethernet cable dropping down from the sky and being plugged into the, <laughs> to the, um, to the holy writer's mind. And then he just goes blank and then he writes what he hears. Instead, God inspired these people to be in these places at this time, to have this education, to have this. All of that, that takes nothing away from the inspiration of Scripture. God has many, many ways of communicating to us. Absolutely. He, can, he, he is sovereign even in the face of human free will. His, he is still sovereign. He is able to superintend his word and start from the, from the basic education that Luke received in his childhood, or Paul. Mm-hmm. Paul, perfect example. He is, um, uh, uh, he is trained where he needed to be trained. He saw what he needed to see. He was perfectly positioned to be the apostle to the Gentiles. <laughs> so um, I don't know if that answers your question or not, but. Sorry. Paul is such an interesting writer, uh, and, and, and there's some things in his writings that uh, I have to be honest with you that um, are kind of myster- mysterious to me. And, and I, I wonder if, if you can kind of shed some light on some places where I, I see a little bit of darkness. Uh, there's, there's two questions I want to ask, and then I'll, I'll throw it over to Tony. Um, and, and one is more of a... I just don't understand what it means kind of a thing and how it relates to us. And the other one is a question that I think really directly relates to a lot of people. Um, The two questions are, um, number one, when you're reading through 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, and Paul says that a woman should have glory on her head because of the angels, that is, it's like, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, when you just casually read through, he just makes a reference to the angels. He says, because of the angels, and he never gives clarity in the passage of what he means by because of the angels. What, and so my question has been, is there something the Corinthian church understood about the angels that maybe we have missed? Or if it's, maybe it's just me personally that I've missed it somewhere else in Paul's writings but why would it be that as a, a proof of, of the woman's long hair, he would make reference to, well, because of the angels? Hmm. Well, part of the reason for our, our mystification over that is, again, the elusive nature of that text. It just Paul was always very reticent about anything angelic. Notice, I, you, you don't want... We talked a moment ago about the differences between the inspired writers. There are vast differences. And sometimes we assume that what one knows and what one thinks is the same thing that another writer knows and thinks. Um, but again, vast, vast differences. Now, they all had a core theology. They all, had, they all had these core beliefs, but they had very different emphases. For instance, Jude, if you read Jude, you're going to hear a lot about angelic activity. Even if you read Peter, you're going to hear a lot about angelic activity. Uh, John, most there, there's no one that is more prolific on the subject of angels than John. But Paul, no. He very rarely talks about angels, and when he does, it's almost always negative. Hmm. All right. Um, 
He doesn't like to talk about them. He feels, it seems, that there is uh, too much of an emphasis on them and that it in some way um, could tempt believers away from the uh, simple, pure gospel of Christ, Christ in him crucified. Um, You start talking about glory when you're dealing with angels, but he wants your focus to be on Calvary because if your eyes are always upon visions of power, traditional visions of power, ideas of power, um, you're not going to live the kind of life you need to live if your eyes are constantly focused on Calvary. This is a life of weakness rather than a life of strength. Um, So God's grace pours through our weakness rather than through our strengths. Um, So Paul is, he rarely speaks of angels, and when he does, he doesn't go into detail. He'll tell you that he got he went to the third heaven, but he will not tell you what he heard there, mm-hmm. or even what he saw there. He just won't do it. Um, now, I don't mean that every time he speaks of angels that he's negative. For instance, there's a text in Second Thessalonians uh, where he speaks of a mighty angel appearing with Christ. Okay, that's as positive as as Paul gets. When he's thinking of angelic activity, he's typically thinking of thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, spiritual wickedness, and high places. These are all different, uh, basically synonyms for for angelic activity. All right, so with that in mind, don't assume that whenever Paul brings up angels that he means something positive or something good. the second reason why this is mystify this mystifies us is because we tend not to know very much about Paul's world. Again, the symbolic world. We 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 know Scripture pretty well, but the New Testament what didn't exist yet in Paul's day, first of all, and um, there was a whole body of literature apart from the Old Testament that existed, um, that, uh, that, that we have some access to today and some of it's lost. Jude, for instance, refers to the book of Enoch. That was to the Western world lost for more than a millennium. Right. Um, these people walked, they knew this stuff, they knew it well, they, um, there, was, there, were, there were stories out there. Um, for instance, in the book of uh, the first book of Enoch, um, there is uh, the story of the fall of mankind, and then I'm sorry, the, the story of the the onset of the flood. And it takes what is just just uh, uh, kind of a uh, abridged version, it seems, in Genesis six, this um, angels procreating with. Uh, uh, the humanity, uh, the, the, daughters, of the daughters of men, and then as a result, this creates a cataclysm, and God destroys the earth. All right, the book of First Enoch, which is probably written some four or five centuries before Christ, um, <clears throat> this this particular book, uh, for whatever reason, goes into a lot of detail on this particular subject, and um, here. Um, the, the angels, these, uh, they're called the Bani Elohim, the, the, the sons of God. They look down upon the fair daughters, and then the, the daughters want to give birth to immortal children. 
And so they, um, they procreate with the sons of God. They seduce, in a, in a way, the sons of God and bring forth these uh, monstrosities as a result. And the monstrosities then teach men how to make uh, swords, shields, weapons of war, and teach the women how to um, use cosmetics um, to beautify themselves, to seduce. Um, isn't that a kind of re- isn't that particular part referenced in Jude uh, it, about the, the the painting of the flesh? It could be. It could be that that Jude is is using some of that. Um, alluding to some of that. Mm-hmm. that he, he seems to have been very familiar with this book because right. he does quote it at one point. Um, so um, the result of all of this is, is, is you now have men at war with one another because they have learned how to make war. And the women are constantly seducing with cosmetics, etc. That's, you know, according to the book First Enoch. And so... <clears throat> Um, God decides upon the flood as a um, as a solution. So, so with that background in mind, um, I don't know this for a fact. I just can't know this. Um, we, no, nobody can. But what if that is in mind when Paul speaks of because of the angels, the woman having a covering upon her head, or having the long uncut hair? This has to do with, this is a visible sign of her submission to her husband and her husband to God. Um, Back up a little bit. What happened, according to 1st Enoch, the flood. It caused the flood. It it was caused by, by apparently, according again to the book of 1st Enoch, by these angels looking down upon women and seeing that they were available and seducing them. They were not an, under submission to their father. They weren't under submission wow. to their husband. Mm-hmm. And so they, 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 uh, they opened the opportunity for uh, this great cataclysm. So um, it, with that background in mind, just at least consider that what Paul means here is possibly negative. Not that you're going to get glory from the angels. Not that you're going to be blessed by the angels. Not that you're going to be surrounded by angelic presence by having the long hair. But rather that it happened once upon a time that because of the lack of obedience, uh, the human race was destroyed very nearly. Okay, so have that covering upon your head because you're, if you're thinking spatially that the angels are above, looking down so they would see first the crown of the head the Mm -hmm. hair Mm -hmm. all right um so i I think you at least ought to entertain that that's a possibility and my final question about paul's writing that that in regards to a mystery that he he makes reference of is when he speaks about how there was given unto me by a messenger of satan a thorn in the flesh I've heard a lot of people speculate as to what the thorn was. I've, I've heard people say that they think that, that it was his eyesight because I think it was in Thessalonians or somewhere that it says that they would have gladly plucked out their eyes for Paul. Uh, and so they would say that, that that means they would have removed their own eyes if it meant Paul could see with their eyes, if they could give them to him as a gift. I've heard that it was said that um, he, he was divorced or he was widowed by an individual. 
what is it that you think the thorn in his flesh is? And beyond that, when we have people that are listening out there that they feel like they've been in that situation where there's just something that's been either put in them or a situation that's come into their life, that as they struggle through what their thorn is, how is it they can get the same clarity of how there is strength through the thorn or beyond the thorn that comes from God to handle that situation? Uh, there again, Paul being Paul, <laughs> um, elusive about details that we badly want. I, I, of all the things that I would like to know in Scripture, I would like to know what Jesus looked like, but none of the Gospels tell us a thing about any of that. I would like to know Paul's family background. Um, there, there is some, some, uh, uh, there is some reason to believe maybe that he was, that he, that he was once married. Whether he had been divorced or, um, or just a widow, widower, um, uh, we don't know. Uh, um, this is another one of those. Paul tell us what that thorn was. But this is a section of scripture in which he's very, very um, elusive. He says, I, for instance, when he's talking about visions, he says, I knew of a man 14 years ago. That's the way he starts talking about his own story, mm -hmm. his own vision. I knew of a man. He starts speaking of himself in the third person as, if, as, as though to distance himself, as if there are two different Pauls, the Paul the apocalyptist and Paul the apostle of Jesus Christ. He says, I don't want to be that over there. Thorn in the flesh, this is in the same section as all of that. Doesn't spell anything out. And um, the best we can do is try to piece some things together. And um, I'm not sure that any of the answers are satisfactory, but I would, like, I would propose a couple. I heard just a moment ago you said something about eyesight. Um, <clears throat> that has been, that's, that's a very, very old theory. Um, he seems to have had poor eyesight um, to the point where at the end of the book of Galatians, letter to the Galatians, he says, you see what large a hand I have written this letter in. All right, that tells us two things. First of all, his amanuensis wasn't there like he normally is. Paul normally has a secretary he dictates the letter to, to write for him. In this case, he was in such straits for whatever reason that he was not able to secure an amanuensis to write the letter for him. So he had to write the letter himself. And he had to use very large letters, abnormally large letters. Um, actually, I, I don't mean letters as in what you have, um, you know, the, the whole thing. I'm talking about just Bold. characters. Right. All right, so alpha, uh, omega, beta, gamma, delta, all these different letters he's writing in an unusually large script. Why would you do that? You would do that if you can't see very well, and your eyes have to be very close to the text. Um, so I've heard that. He was stoned. He was stoned. You get hit in the head with a stone. Yeah. That's going to probably change some eyesight. Yeah. Um, so that, that's, a, that's a possibility. But the Lord um, asking the Lord to remove the thorn? What does that mean here? I, I, don't, I don't know what it would mean in the context of eyesight. Um, I've heard that this is a spiritual condition. Uh, it theorized that, well, perhaps, 
perhaps uh, Paul is talking about um, uh, talking about uh, some temptation, some constant temptation that was always with him. <clears throat> that is perhaps a possibility. I just don't know. Third, um, and I have speculated this before myself, I don't know if I hold to it anymore, but um, everywhere he went, uh, if you look, read the book of Acts, especially in the earlier journeys, everywhere he goes, he starts out successfully, and then the same band of Judaizers come in behind him and undo all the work that he does. No matter how far away he goes, he goes from Thessalonica to Berea to try to get away from these people, and he has success amongst the Bereans. The next thing you know, the Judaizers are back, and this follows him everywhere he goes. Take this thorn in the flesh away from me. I don't know. It's a possibility. Um, the the one I would I would probably I won't be I'll be surprised by the least if I were to find out one day in glory um, would be that um, he had a speech impediment. Um, he was impressive in writing, but unimpressive in person. So they would say, "Well, boy, you." You're so, you thunder in your letters. I mean, you have a golden tongue, a golden pen mm -hmm. in your letters. It's so impressive. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. Um, uh, by the mercies of God, I beseech you, brethren, live your lives. He's just, he's, it just flows and, and uses uh, tremendous, tremendous literary skills. But in person, he never failed to not impress. Um, there's a story uh, that Luke tells of, of Paul and Barnabas of traveling together, and a miracle is performed. Even though Paul seems to have been the one who performed the, the miracle, the, um, uh, the, the people, when they go to say, oh, this is the two, two gods have visited us, Zeus and Hermes have visited us. Which of the two do you suppose they called Zeus, not Paul? Yeah, Hermes the mess. Uh, yeah. Hermes. So, um, speech impediment, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it, he gets in front of people, and he speaks. And this is not their image of an impressive speaker. Apollos comes behind him, who's mighty in the scriptures and very eloquent. And next thing you know, he's playing second fiddle um, to the Corinthians. Um, so if I had to guess, that is this. And so Paul says, if it's the case that there's some kind of speech impediment. Now remember, Moses seems to have had one as well. Mm -hmm. um, so you could make an awful lot out of this. Um, Paul ended up seeing this as a um, uh, channel through which God's grace could flow through him. Uh, if indeed he had the speech impediment and this is the thorn, the slowness, the thickness of the tongue that he asked three times to be taken away, if that was the case, then um, perhaps when he stands in front of people and he preaches Christ crucified, what better way of exhibiting the crucifixion, the weakness, the, the, the bound nature of Christ on the cross than for you to speak um, haltingly unimpressively, but yet you hear the vision, you hear the call of God in this, you see the image of Christ, and you respond to it, possibly. So you asked, 
you asked um, um, about our situation. Um, if indeed it was a speech impediment, whatever it was, whatever it was, Paul came in time to see that whatever this thorn was, though it was sent by literally an angel of Satan, that's what the text says, an angel of Satan, not a messenger of Satan, an angel of Satan came to beat me. Um, whatever it was, this became um, God's grace. So that pain, that suffering, that inability, that limitation on Paul ended up becoming God's way of uh, channeling grace through him. And without that, you know, you have a choice in the end. Do you want your strength, your bird form of the grace of God? So for everyone else, um, your limitations, your, your, your problems, your um, um, anxieties, whatever it may, weaknesses can actually become a, a channel of God's mercy. Sure. So, Brian and I would like to thank you for taking time to sit down with us. But before we wrap up, uh, we want to give you a chance to uh, give us a book recommendation, something that you're reading or something you've read that's, you know, something that's been powerful for you or something that's really spoke to you. You and can then, even plug your own books. Yeah, you can even plug your own <laughs> books. You can do that if you want to. Um, but uh, what I would like for you to do is, um, after you do that, we usually give the floor for a final thought. Um, but uh, what I would want to do is you said a, a phrase that God pours into weakness. I would like for you to little, elaborate just a little bit on that as we wrap up. But, but before you do that, uh, what is, what's a book that um, you really recommend? Well, that's sort of like asking a father to, to pick his favorite son. Um, <laughs> um, well, um, I, I guess it, I guess it depends on on uh, depends on your context, what your your goals might be, your your sensibilities, all that sort of thing. But for for me, um, uh, <laughs> this is going to sound ridiculous on the heels of everything we've been talking about. <laughs> no, but, go ahead. But um, I am um, indebted to the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, particularly the Lord of the Rings, and to C.S. Lewis's *Mere Christianity*, um, these these two these two books uh, were instrumental in um, in uh, uh, inspiring me to go further. Um, before I met C.S. Lewis's *Mere Christianity* in a Barnes and Noble bookstore in 2002. Um, I was, um, I had no interest whatsoever in um, exploring the issues of, of my faith further, of, of finding or exploring any depth. Um, I was perfectly content until that time um, to, um, God, to give God one-seventh of my time and one-tenth of my money. Um, and then I opened up this, this book and found that uh, I should have discovered this from scripture, but I didn't. But um, uh, I found in this book, uh, Mere Christianity, I found that all of the treasures, the greatest treasures were here already in my faith. Um, that they had been with me this whole time, that I had been given them um, 
these riches from childhood. And so just um, th those two books right there, know them well. So um, to, to what Tony was saying there at the end, hearing this, this wrap up, if you would, you would speak on, uh, I, Tony shut his notes, so I, I don't have the exact quote of what he was talking about, where God pours into our pain. If you could just uh, speak to our listeners about that for a moment. Yes, I, I think we started this discussion out there a, a little bit. Um, um, uh, I, I, I like to think of the second verse of John Newton's Amazing Grace in this context. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, grace my fears relieved." Um, uh, without without the, um, the suffering, without limitation, without m my vulnerability, um, I would perhaps go through life completely ignorant of the God I um, that the God I owe, the Creator that made me. Um, I think of myself, or human beings in general, tend to think of themselves, at least at a certain age, as immortal. And um, uh, we are uh, always in danger of forgetting our Creator. And the, uh, the author of Ecclesiastes reminds us to remember our Creator in the days of our youth. Um, we're always in, in danger of forgetting that most important thing about our existence. This is the forgettable truth. And pain more than anything else, the thorn in the flesh more than anything else, um, uh, makes us aware of our indebtedness, of our dependence upon God. Um, uh, we throw ourselves upon the mercy of God when we come up against our limitations. And um, I suppose if we, didn't, if we didn't have that thorn in the flesh, in whatever form it comes to you in, um, you might go through life, again, ignorant of the most important thing in life. I hope this conversation has enriched your walk with God. I hope that, that as you've heard us talk today, I hope that you understand that there is a depth of Scripture that perhaps is beyond what you have currently grasped. If you're interested in a Bible study, Tony and I want to make that available to you. You can contact us at thecrucialconversation at gmail.com. You can text or call Tony at 870-340-8262, or you can call or text me at 870-680-3670. We may not be able to give you the most sophisticated answers like Dr. Painter has done, but we can at least help you get started on your journey or take the next step in your journey. We thank you for listening to The Crucial Conversation. Mm -hmm.